Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Art, Art of War. War. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. All right, let's 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 get right into it. So I guess let's pick up and uh, and and go over what happened in the previous podcast and what we're going to be discussing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so we are jumping through time again today. So uh, let's just do a brief overview of what happened in our previous podcast. So uh, we, we did the Battle of Belgrade, or the Siege of Belgrade, which was pretty much the most deciding battle in the at the time uh the ottoman hungarian war and it uh resulted in a hungarian victory uh with john hunadi as the as the leading commander of the hungarians and mehmed ii as the leading commander for the ottomans Mm -hmm. right and so this was a big boon to the hungarians they um pretty much secured uh that the ottomans would not invade for quite a long time right um, unfortunately, yeah. Hunyadi, who was emerging as a major leader leader in Hungary, perished after the battle due to a plague. So then there was kind of that absence of his leadership, um, which is a little bit unfortunate. But we the, the like politics surrounding who becomes king of Hungary gets pretty crazy after that, right? Yeah, and and Hunyadi was trying to at least get his son or someone in his family as a potential. Uh, ruler after he passed because he was going to die but so that that battle that battle transpires and Mehmed is kind of like thrown on his heels and forced back to Constantinople right yeah so just talking about the politics of this time so after the battle of Belgrade we briefly talked about the infant prince who you know is King Ladislav the posthumous and um, so he was a rightful heir to the throne but he was very young at the time and so when Hunyadi was trying to secure the throne for himself or his family, the, infant, the prince, King or King Ladislav, had fled the country when the Ottomans were sieging Belgrade. And so after they won the siege of Belgrade, he comes back and he's like, whoa, great. And he tries to take his rightful throne of the king. Um, and he had some support from some other, some other players. But so basically after Hunyadi dies... King Ladislaus tries to pressure Hunyadi's son, who is also named Ladislaus. Interestingly <laughs> enough, he tries to pressure Hunyadi's son to renounce his inheritance, basically, and give up his castles and his um, his land and stuff like that. But Hunyadi's son didn't really want to do that, obviously, and ends up murdering King Ladislaus, the posthumous ally, the Czech Catholic Lord Ulrich II. And so this leads to a whole big like issue where Hunyadi's sons are both imprisoned by the King Ladislav, and then the other son is uh, Matthias. So Matthias's brother is Ladislav Hunyadi, and he's actually executed for this murder. And this causes a whole big rebellion in Hungary, basically because the Hunyadi's relatives are not going to stand for that. They have a pretty pretty good allies and decent fighting force. So they throw a rebellion causing the king Ladislaus the posthumous to flee the country and then he dies ex- unexpectedly. So this creates like an empty throne in Hungary, right? And then Matthias's uncle who is 
Silagi, right? He was the leader of the garrison at Belgrade, basically persuades the powers that be to declare Matthias the king at the age of 15. Yeah. And and now, you know, you see a lot in these podcasts we're talking about. Uh, a lot of these empires, these extremely powerful countries, uh, they have rulers that are very young, yeah. like extremely young. Like Mehmet II was 12 years old whenever he took over the Ottoman Empire. He had his dad, Murad, take over for a while and lead the the battle into actual Hungary and be like the, the chief general. But he was still leading the, you know, the entire empire. And the same thing here. It's it's like a 15-year-old, you know, you're not, you don't have a lot of understanding of how things work at 15. So it's pretty wild that he's, he's accepting of it. And then he actually, you know, he spends about 10 years after he takes the throne constantly in battled with the Ottomans, keeping them out of his territories. Right. And, it, and not it only that, well. but he actually waged a lot of campaigns against other Christian nations to mm-hmm. secure really the, the boundaries and territories of Hungary. Yeah. And while, while actually, uh, this whole period of time is transpiring from Belgrade to the, the battle we're going to be talking about today, uh, the territories that were once Hungarian territories, which is the Romania, Bulgaria area and, and, uh, Transylvania, half of it, uh, rebels the one on the eastern side towards the constantinople and the ottoman empire it actually a a guy rebels and claim, claims himself as the the ruler of the territory and names it Wallachia, like we talked about before and so mm-hmm. he's and battled with even his own people the ones that he's supposed to be under control so yeah he's he's got a pretty tough task on his hands whenever he takes the throne yeah and i would say you know, as far as a king goes, Matthias actually was not that bad. One of the major things that he did, which really wasn't commonplace at the time, was he created an actual standing army called the Black Army of Hungary, or the Black Legion, which was basically an army of mercenaries that I'm going to get into later when we talk about the battle preparations. But this is something that none of the Christian nations really did, because at the time it was kind of like if you needed an army... You would have a crusade sanctioned by the Pope and get a bunch of bannermen and stuff like that, which are basically just knights under a banner and then peasants recruited from the local lands. But this is one of the rare instances when they have an actual standing army that's paid and their whole job is to be soldiers. Yeah, it's funny because they this army that gets like you're going to talk about them, I know, but whenever they... Uh, when it first gets created and they win a few battles against the Ottomans, they just Im- immediately gets this legacy as like one of the most formidable forces in the entire known world. And then everybody starts, you know, referencing the Black Army as one of the best fighting forces you could ever imagine. And it's like, I wonder if other countries had even taken to that ideology and created their own standing army, if the same thing would have happened. Or, and they would become these extremely powerful countries just by having a standing army. Uh, but y- you can see, because it was very expensive to have this army. So King Matthias, when he was, in, when he claimed the kingship, he actually had to increase taxes a lot to be able to pay for this army. So after he, you know, in the future passes away, the army's actually disbanded and the, the Hungarian like regents of power cut taxes by like 70% for all of the people. So it was very, very yeah. expensive to have this army. Yeah. And also talking on Matthias being a good leader, he's able to keep control of his actual country pretty well these they're they're very loyal to his cause and they support for the majority they support his his uh plight against the ottomans and and the attempt to try to retake Wallachia. and uh he's doing this all while like you said there's an increased tax right and also the territories outside of hungary and even in the 
the border area of Hungary are being constantly raided and pillaged by the Ottomans. So they don't have a lot of reasons to be loyal, but I guess he must have inspired them in some manner. He must have done something with with how he ruled that kept them loyal. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's and this is you know he's fifteen twenty years old, so it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I was reading some accounts saying how he would dress in common wear and then help people on the streets pretty much and apparently he was very just like he was very fair and ruling on conflicts between citizens and stuff like that so that i think that's what gained him a lot of popularity as well but he did tax them a lot <laughs> yeah so yeah that that's basically setting up and uh it, what really starts this whole this battle we're gonna be talking about which is the battle of breadfield is the kind of unrest that's stemming from the Hungarian side of the concentrating the Transylvanian people who've taken the brunt of it. And then also the Ottomans, they're, they're starting to see that this is a vulnerable territory and more and more Ottomans and Turks start arriving into Transylvania to engage in the plundering, the looting, make some money themselves. So it starts at first with these small little parties, maybe one to 2,000 led by, you know, some wealthy Turk. And then it turns into, you know, 10 to 20,000 it's soldiers in these bands and it starts forming into like a, a legitimate army yeah. and then that warrants hungaria trying to you know having to create an army them or rally an army themselves to to fend off the uh the yeah invasion force potentially and a, another important cause for this this raiding parties increasing is because the ottoman empire in the spring of 1479 actually ends their war with the Republic of Venice, which was a very long-standing, you know, 10-year war they had. So they had a lot more manpower and resources to dedicate to um, these kind of raiding parties. And it's also important to note that these raiding parties are mainly made up of the Akinji, which are a different kind of light cavalry in the Ottoman Empire that actually aren't paid any salaries or wages. So they have to pretty much support themselves through battles and raiding and looting that way. Yeah, these, these raiding parties, these 10 to 20,000, they're not funded by the Ottoman Empire at all. It's not even condoned for a period of time because, like he said, they are fighting. They were fighting in Venice and they were fighting in Moldovia, which is to the north of, of the Ottoman Empire, and then Venice is to the south of it. And so for them, it didn't make much sense to push into Transylvania where they would be flanked on both sides and, and you know, not have a good place to retreat to than other than Constantinople. And also, they weren't being funded, so they would have to make their own money to survive. So once the both the, the War of Moldovia also, it also ends around the exact same period of time that Venice, the, the war with Venice uh, ends, mm -hmm. they've now, they've got all this free reign and territory and they have no one really hungry, you know, is not at war with them. They, they've been in constant battles to keep them out of the territories, but there's been no declaration of war straight up for, for you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, so they, they're kind of, you know, kind of like pushing in, seeing how far they could take it, how much money they can make off of these these untouched territories. Right. So King Matthias hears word of this amassing Ottoman raiding forces at the in Transylvania. And so he sends one of his generals at the time, which was... Um, Kenizzi Paul, right? Yep. Yeah. And he tasks Stephen Batory, which who who was a military leader in Transylvania, to kind of go with a force and intercept the Ottoman army and take care of this problem. Yeah, and and the um, Batory, he's he's pronounced. Excuse me if I say this incorrectly, because it's kind of hard to say. He's a, a vulvoid, 
which is essentially kind of an ambassador, a military ambassador to Transylvania. He presides over Transylvania and ensures their defense and their safety. So for Matthias, uh, his logic is that they're not technically in Hungary yet, so it's not a Hungarian issue, but since Transylvania is a vassal state of Hungary, it's also the responsibility of Hungary to support and defend that territory. So Matthias himself isn't uh, attending this battle. He's not rallying the troops. He's not leading the army. He puts the essentially military ambassador in charge of defending Transylvania. That's why you won't really see Matthias in in this battle. Yeah, so the general that Matthias sends with, with his little army is Kanizi Paul, and this guy is really cemented as sort of a folk hero in Hungarian culture. And even because he was basically a mercenary, and there's not really any accounts that are reliable to see where he came from, what his upbringing was, because he wasn't a nobleman, so there wasn't really any reason for anybody to care about his um, his upbringing and his past. So he's kind of this mysterious military leader that becomes very famed, especially for this battle, as we will see. But so let's get into, I guess, the battle preparations. So this Ottoman... Wait, 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 wait. Can I just, can I just jump in? Okay. <laughs> I want to just jump in. I got, some, I got something interesting to say about Kinesi okay. Paul. There's, there's, there's an, a, a claim that he was a miller's son... And whenever Matthias was passing through a uh, Hungarian province, he stopped at a mill to gain to get water because he was so thirsty. And it's claimed that uh, Kinesi Paul, who at the time was very young, 10 to 12 years old, but was, stood at the, the height of 8 feet is what they claim. Yes. He came in with a millstone in one hand and had a bucket of water on it and, and gave it to the king. And so... Uh, a lot of the folk stories tell of him being this like giant, this extremely tall man, how he's unkillable in battle, the greatest warrior of all time. And there's also a lot of other different origin stories for where he came from. Some people say that he was a, a serf that was just working the fields and then fought off a bunch of Ottomans single-handedly. There's a bunch of crazy stories. He's a very, he's a very interesting figure at, yeah. at the time. And even in, in Hungary today that he's still pretty, pretty talked about. Yeah. And he's famed for apparently wielding two great swords in, in both hands. Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of yes. an interesting picture to imagine. Big, big eight-foot-tall guy with two great swords. Yes. All right, so I guess to talk about the military profession. Sorry for interrupting you there. Um, nope, it's all good, brother. Yeah, so the Ottoman Empire, their kind of ragtag army, enters Transylvania as the major force in October 9th and pretty much the fall of 1479, and it's led by Ali Koja Bey, right? Who was um, like the Bey's? What the Bey like is a title in the Ottoman Empire, which basically means that you're a governor or a military leader or something like that. So this is a military leader who had was leading the Ottoman troops, but he also had support from a Wallachian prince and some other people as well. And so when they first arrive in Transylvania, they're just kind of burning towns, capturing Transylvanians to sell in the slave trade, and looting pretty much. Yeah, and and you know for a while, uh, Lakey has been trying to get the Ottomans to join up on a military invasion of Hungary because they're in open rebellion with the Hungarian throne and the current king. Let's see, I have his name here. Where's his name? It's a very a very interesting name. Uh, give me a second. Yeah, Balsarab. He uh he actually creates Wallachia. He's the one that founds Wallachia, and he 
he's been trying for for since he rebelled to get the Ottoman Empire to join up. So he contributes the vast majority of his army that he can even rally, which is about two thousand soldiers to the front. But so this is like a big deal for for Wallachia to even have this massive Ottoman force that's in Transylvania and is potentially kind of you know moving towards a, a conflict with with Hungary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there is this two thousand strong Wallachian force but then the Ottoman Empire numbers are closer to you know tens of thousands some estimates say 30 to 60 thousands actual King Matthias at the time when he was writing a letter letters to somebody I think his uncle he said that there was 45,000 troops um, so the Ottoman Empire definitely has a decent force at this time and so it's composed as we know as of the Janissaries and the Sapahis which are the the mainstays and also now we have the Kinji, which are the, the light cavalry raiders. Yep. And so I guess let's break down. I know you've got a lot to talk about the Hungarian forces and the Black Army, but the Hungarian forces were comprised of just like, you know, at the previous battles, all across the the country and all across the surrounding countries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Croatians, Transylvanians, Saxons, the even some, interestingly enough, even some Wallachians that had either left because of their distaste for the Turks and the raiding and come over to hung- Hungary or who knows why, and a bunch of Moldovians and, and Venetians, just all kinds of people all across that, that area, they all join up and uh, that's what comprises the troops that aren't the Black Army. Right, yeah, so we'll Hungarians. talk about the Black Legion, which is the permanent standing mercenary army that King Matthias had um, created. And so the, the structure of this army is it pretty much has three groups. They have the, the cavalry group, which is composed of the heavy cavalry, which are the mercenary knights that ride on the armored horses, and the hussars, or the elite light cavalry. And then we have the pavisors, I believe is how it's pronounced, which are basically the shield bearers. So they have these kind of oblong shields that you kind of shove into the ground and crossbowmen or archers hide behind them and shoot over them and then the last group are the archers and the light infantry and the riflemen so at this point in time gunpowder is you know very expensive the ottoman empire is the ones that really pioneered it but um you know king matthias realizes how important gunpowder and rifles are in battles now and so he funds it to where every fourth soldier in the black army that in the infantry is equipped with a rifle and it's it's called an arquebus and so that's kind of the basic structure we have of the black legion and you know it's funny because with previous battles and, and instances that are usually sieges from the ottomans you see a lot of artillery use but in actual these skirmishes and these battles that have occurred since since belgrade and, and prior to that the use of arquebuses, they're they're you know they're relevant, but the the loading time is so slow on those that the majority of the damage and the majority of the strategy that's employed in the battles are still the cavalry. Mm. Those are still who's making you know the the decisions and who wins the battle. So they might you know contribute to maybe the center losing a little bit of strength from from the fire, but. If for such a technology to exist, it's sad that neither neither side really implemented it. Like, imagine if they had come up with the idea to use mounted cavalry that were heavily armored while also carrying arguments. That could have done some serious damage, right? But yeah, you know, it's they're still with armed with pikes and spears and and 
you know, swords. They're not, they don't really take advantage of that as much. Yeah, and we'll definitely see in this battle how just a small contingency of heavy cavalry can have a much bigger impact than a bunch of riflemen. And an eight-foot-tall guy. Yeah, eight-foot-tall, <laughs> dual-wielding greatswords. Dual, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the uh, what, what occurs is uh, after the two forces have, have gathered their armies, uh, the Hungarians are planning to go and meet them in battle somewhere and stop them. And the Ottomans, you know, they have an intent to, to engage with the Hungarians, but also their main purpose is also still to loot, right? Mm-hmm. They're still trying to acquire wealth because, like we said, the majority of those those fighting in the Ottoman ar- army were raiders and they're not funded by They're not given a waged wage. They're not a, a, an employed member of the Ottoman Empire. So the, the plan that, ar- that arrives at uh, Batori's feet is that he's going to let these ottomans raid and pillage transylvania and yes. do as much damage as possible and wear themselves out gather a ton of a ton of loot and and overburden themselves and then whenever they go to rest and encamp somewhere he's going to strike which is a pretty clever idea and uh that's basically what happens uh, the the ottoman empire plans to rest in a large field called Redfield because it was a wheat field mm-hmm. uh, in transylvania and that's whenever they make contact. Yeah, so it is, you know, I guess a good calculation on Battery's part, but you know, you you are because he is a Transylvanian leader, so he's just kind of letting a lot of yeah. towns in his country basically get destroyed and all the people taken into slavery. But you know, you got to do what you got to do to win against the Ottoman Empire, because yeah, and there's even there, there's claims that. The like entire cities were raised and completely depopulated, and cities that had seen that and were on the path to of the Ottomans would com- just migrate to Hungary, and they just be these giant wastelands of unoccupied towns because they just knew it laid laid in wait for mm-hmm. them. So this forty thousand Ottoman soldiers. Yeah, he just kind of he knows that that's that's what he has to do. It's kind of sad, but he he has to do yeah. it. Yeah. So the Ottoman Empire is encamped at Breadfield. And then the Hungarian forces move to meet them. And so this is where the battle is going to occur. And so the general setup, if I'm cool to go in the setup, do you have anything else to add? No, that's, I mean, they're, they're, they they cross the uh, Manoush River, uh, mm-hmm. they, the Hungarians do, and they meet in a field. It's a very large, open, flat field. Right. It's, it's a large, open, flat field, and they have the river on one side of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the forces, they're pretty much set up similar ways. They just, um, the Ottoman army and the Hungarian army are just split into three columns, pretty much each led by different leaders. So on the Hungarian side, you have Knizzi on the right flank, who's leading the heavy cavalry. And you have the left flank was the light cavalry, who was led by... um, well, it's gonna be a fun one. I I tried figuring out how to say this. There's a lot of different pronunciations of this one. Yeah, Vuk, Vuk, Grigorovich. I think is the correct one. Grigorovich. Okay. And then yes, so we'll yeah. go with Vuk Grigorovich, who is leading the light cavalry, and then you have um, battery in the center with the infantry. Yeah, and the Ottomans have the exact same formation with. And they're, they're comprised, you know, of cavalry on the outside flanks, like usual, and infantry in the center. And uh, the Ottoman side, the the left flank is actually the Ali uh, 
Koja Bay. He's leading the, the left flank mm-hmm. instead of the center. Iza Bay is in the, the center. And uh, a guy named, there's not much information on this guy. His name was Malkoch Ogul. Yes. Uh, he's kind of got a weird contingent of a Kinji. I assume he was like a, a raiding leader or, or some, someone. Yeah, he had to be. Uh, he led the light cavalry on uh, their left flank. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 basically the, the setup for the the Ottomans. Yeah. So now we can get into the battle. Um, unfortunately, there really wasn't too much information on the actual battle. Maybe that's because, as as we'll talk about, it was a pretty. It seemed as a as a pretty short battle. Um, yeah. But you know, this probably is one of the more obscure battles that we've covered to this point. For sure. It's very interesting though, because there's a lot of important characters that are. You know, involved. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of really strange big names in this in this battle. Yeah. So that's one yeah. of the reasons I was interested in it. But okay, so how does the battle start? So they basically all engage each other. The left right flank clash and the center clashes. So they're just in 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 conflict. And since the Ottomans have superior numbers, they're forcing the the uh, Hungarians back in the center and on their uh, their right flank, mm-hmm. the, the Ottomans right flank. So uh Kenichi paul is the only one that's really kind of holding his own because he, like clay said he's leading heavy cavalry very very strong cavalry unit against uh light cavalry and akinji sapi uh, sapi and uh, akinji cavalry so he's kind of having a good time of it uh whilst the hungarians look like they're kind of struggling on the other fronts and they're getting pushed back towards the moorish river yeah and so a significant event that happens is Batari's actually knocked off of his horse, right? And so the Ottomans kind of surround his center force. They knock him off his horse and they attempt to capture him because as we've seen in, you know, the Battle of Varna, once the main leader of the army gets killed or captured, it really decreases the chances of that that part winning. Um, but he's actually saved by a knight, Antal, who saves his life and whisks him on his horse. So it really kind of avoids catastrophe there. Yeah, and it occurs very quickly in the battle, like right at the very beginning. So can you imagine if he just immediately got his head chopped off or captured or something happened to him, and then the morale just ends for his entire fighting force, and then it's over within a, you know like less than an hour? Yeah. Been pretty unfortunate. Yeah. But that, that's not what happens. Nope. So then what um, is kind of the counterattack by the Hungarians? So Kinesi, like we were, we were talking about, he's leading the superior fighting force, and he recognizes that immediately, that he, he the Akinji and Sapi are not much of a threat to him. Mm-hmm. So he also sees that the center and left flank, yeah, their left flank is, is struggling. So what his play is, is to kind of mock that there's an you know there's a lot more fighting going on mock that they're maybe losing and he draws the the uh, ottomans off the field that he's in, in fighting and he once he's taken them pretty pretty good distance away from the center he just completely destroys and routes them so that they have no chance really to re you know group with the actual army the ottoman empire right and then he just encircles around now he's got free reign of the entire back of the ottoman empires army yeah and so the most since he's leading this heavy cavalry he leads the main thing you do with the heavy cavalry is a cavalry charge that's what they're most effective in because you're just basically going in a straight line with these super armored horses and these knights and cutting down people 
And pretty much the Ottoman tactic to counter that was just to avoid them altogether and attack them from the rear. But because they did this kind of bait and switch, they were able to just plow through the Ottoman forces. And they plowed through the left flank with this cavalry charge, causing Ali Kosha Bay to retreat. And then they plow through the center, causing Isa Bay's forces to rout. And it, it was just, you know, one charge pretty much led by um, Kanizi that won this battle. Yeah single-handedly and he gets you know he gets the, the at least the recognition after the battle and he gets crowned the hero of the of the the event and yeah that's that's the the definite pur- purpose of heavy cavalry they're just shock cavalry because can you imagine having a you know massive horse laden in hundreds of pounds of armor with a dude on back that's armored holding a large spear or a sword just running straight into you even if they don't make contact with their weapon you're still going to get destroyed by the cat the horse and right? i think one of the things yeah, that's why they're called the black legion is a lot of their armor was decorated as black so just imagine like this giant yeah. black force of, on giant horses charging at you it'd be pretty yeah, terrifying that's, that's, a, that's the best thing about these podcasts just imagine those just like putting the the, the battle in in your actual mind just imagine sitting there just on your, standing on the ground with your sword and maybe your light armor and you turn around there's a giant wall of black armored yeah a heavy cavalry running straight at the you sound you, of that you hoof beats oh. yeah i, I do want to mention though, kicking that up. the hussar light cavalry of the hungarians was actually pretty effective as well on the left flank against the ottoman light cavalry they were um well more well armored and had um some better tactics so they actually were doing pretty well on their own as well yeah and uh yeah so the majority of the ottoman force routes they're gone they it said that they the surviving forces at least uh, made it to the hills and were routinely killed by the residents of the hills mm-hmm. i don't know if that's true or not but that's what's claimed and actually is bay he has the opportunity to flee with the rest of his forces but he chooses to stay with his Jan- Janissary contingent, and uh, they all fight to the death. They they hold out for quite a while after the main force is gone, and they all get massacred. Yep, and so like the Greek mercenaries back in the Alexander campaign. Yeah, they you know go out with honor, I suppose. Um, but yeah, yeah, so this battle it really cements Kanizi as one of the greatest Hungarian heroes of all time, and there's a lot of you know folklore that gets brought up it said that he danced with three bodies he held two with his yeah. arms and he had one in his in his teeth and he danced like all night uh, on the victory of the battlefield yeah i wish we could we could display the many many renderings and art of that that actual event occurring it's pretty interesting yeah it's yeah like a... i could probably yeah maybe i'll just throw something on the instagram because it's it's pretty yeah. funny but yeah and so he you know, ends up continuing to lead raids into Serbia against the Ottomans after this point. So he's definitely a very prominent military figure at this time for Hungary. Yep. And uh, I guess let's kind of break down what it meant for each side, because the Ottoman Empire, this is the first attack they've really tried making on Hungary in 20, 30 years. And they actually lose almost one third of their entire fighting force which is a crazy number. Mm-hmm. They lost about 10,000 to 11,000 troops of an army that was probably about thirty to 35,000. 
And that's just, you know, what was dead on the battlefield. Who knows what actually happened to them once they, they you know, fled into the hills. But that was, it was really bad for them. Because once again, they kind of have to, you know, run back to Constantinople with their their head held low and in fear of what's going to happen to them. And the Hungarian forces, they only lose about two to 3,000 troops after the battle. So it's not, it's not bad for them at all. Yeah, so this is, you know, almost on the same par with the siege of belgrade victory because this does ensure that the ottomans are not going to invade transylvania or hungary for you know a very long time to come because they just suffered another very bad defeat yeah yeah and uh and also you know to bring it up because it's important is that the main fighting force of Wallachia was also defeated in this battle and Wallachia was you know wasn't a big threat uh, they were more of an annoyance to the Hungarian Empire, but now that's kind of prevented them from being, a, you know, a problem for, for a while, too. So it looks pretty good, just like after the, the Siege of Belgrade. It looks pretty good for the Hungarians. They've they've taken a lot from this battle. Yeah, and this is, you know, a big boon to King Matthias, because pretty much at this time, anytime you win a major victory against the Ottomans, and you go tell the Pope, everyone's like, awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're like, great, now let's take Constantinople back. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no. <laughs> that doesn't happen yeah uh but i guess i wanted to bring this up because i thought it was extremely interesting uh one of the facts that that could have been attributed to why the ottomans lost the battle and why they didn't recognize what was happening on uh Kinesi's flank was that ali koja bay he he chose to be part of the battle which was very odd for an ottoman uh general at the time mm. usually the Ottoman generals would sit back and they would watch from a elevated position so that they could navigate the battle and, and be able to direct their generals on where to go and who to attack and what plays to make. So him being in actually engaged in combat didn't allow him really to see what was transpiring. And maybe if he had been able to witness what was occurring, he could have told uh, Kinesi's flank to not leave the battlefield so that they could maybe have regrouped after they had been routed or maybe they could have gotten closer to the 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 center and maybe you know it wouldn't have gone so poorly but i just thought that was kind of kind of interesting because he actually chooses to to be part of the battle which doesn't usually happen for the ottomans yeah that's that is actually a good point didn't really think about that but yeah usually they are positioned behind the forces and they kind of oversee it yeah and they're they're pretty heavily defended but he's he's with his Kinji and sapi troops just fighting with them which is you know honorable but might have been a reason for why they they lost but who knows yeah so this is you know another instance we see that the ottomans have a significant numbers advantage but they still still suffer a pretty serious defeat yep but yeah so let's do i guess the ranking for this one there's not in my mind there's not really too much um ingenious strategy here but the cavalry charge was very effective you know and so that's kind of bread and butter i don't know i guess i'd just give that the ranking of maybe some chicharronas you know it's like an important <laughs> staple yeah i mean you gotta also add a little bit maybe add some spices to it because they were being led by a uh, eight foot tall dual wielding giant that is true can easy paul you know that's kind of that's kind of interesting you know if the battle didn't have him it would have been a lot less a lot less fun it'd been a little bit more boring yeah he was definitely the, he, the best um yes yeah. part of this whole battle i wonder i wonder if he was actually like like 
five foot tall and just everybody just made up stories about him to tell how big he was and he really like just had like two little daggers in his hand yeah, maybe he started the stories <laughs> yeah maybe he started all the stories nobody had actually seen what he looked like except for his troops uh but yeah i think that's a pretty fair rating for, for the battle it was it was very quick and there was only one decisive action that you know resulted in what it resulted in yeah but so that's all i had yeah, that's, that's it. I think I covered everything I wanted to talk about. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, it was fun. And, um, yeah, catch us next week. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host, Eliza, talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that.